You're listening to Real Crime, the Movie Sleuth Podcast. Thank you, Vanna. Yes. This will be a glorious show tonight. Mm. A glorious show. Thank you very much. (laughs) This is the Real Crime Podcast. I am Scott. That I is, am Andy. That is Mr. Andrew. He's the beautiful, lovely Mr. Andrew next to me. Thank you. Over there working the mouse like it's his wiener is Mr. Chris. This is about as much as I can project my voice tonight. I don't know why. I'm going to do the best I can myself because I know I, I guess of, of the compliment of all the people that make up the Real Crime podcast, I'm probably the biggest blabbermouth of all of us, and I probably have the least important stuff or interesting stuff to say. <laughs> That's just my own personal opinion. I don't know. Do we have any? Do we ever get any reviews on this podcast, Chris? No, not really. Well, I guess that's a positive thing, and that's cool. Um, but yeah, we're here again this week. It's been a, we were off last week. We had yeah, we've been off for a couple of weeks. Have now. we? Yeah, no. yeah, yeah. Really? It's been like Labor three Day weeks. Week. Yeah. Labor Day weekend last. So really? It's understandable that we would need to take some time off. Yeah. We've been off since, uh, I can tell you right now, It's it's been like three weeks. No. Yeah, yeah, no. yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, Last episode was August 16th. Holy crap, we yeah. suck. It happens, you know. We're so lazy. Life. However, this is episode number 61. Damn. Yes. We're Medicare? <laughs> we're we're, we're going to get Medicare pretty soon. We're getting up there. Uh, we got a very, very cool episode coming up or discussion coming up as part mm. of the show. However, you know, and this is the best I think you've looked, Chris. Mm. You look great today. So I don't I don't know <clears throat> what happened, but I know you've been out there on the street. I lost a little weight because I was pooping for a few days there. <laughs> <laughs> you still got the news for us this week. Yes, I do, Chris. sir. What do we yes. have? What do we have? Really not that much. Um Today it was reported that it will actually be the highest pre-sale horror tickets ever known to mankind. <laughs> Michelle is raving about this. Yeah, I, I read her little blurb on I think the face base or whatever. Yeah, and uh, she's like, "This is one of the greatest like reimaginings, I guess you'd call it, of a film." Mm-hmm. Um, and everybody I've talked to is like just blown away. Yeah, we saw it last night, and honestly, it's kind of crazy because in the I was telling Andrew earlier, like in the first three to four minutes of the movie, something so brutal happens that you're like, holy shit, they're not fucking around with this thing. Yeah. And it never stops. The movie is creepy as hell. Bill Skarsgård as Pennywise is just badass. He is so good in this. Every right. time he talks, he's drooling. Mm. He's just, it's fierce. It's fierce from beginning to end. And they, they it just never lets up. Yeah. It's gory. Just, I, I don't even know, really know what to say. It's great. It's I'm really great. Looking forward to seeing it this Friday. Yeah. I'm going to have to go next week because I'm going to be busy for the rest of the week here. So tomorrow, I'm on the, hmm? Tomorrow we're doing the... Uh, newly discovered yeah. uncut print of Suspiria at the It's going to be Theater. the Andrew, Scott, Michelle, and Chris Jordan show mm-hmm. for that. Mm-hmm. We'll be traveling out to sunny and beautiful Ann Arbor, Michigan mm-hmm. for the screening at the Michigan Theater, if I'm, if I'm not mistaken, Mr. Yes. Andrew. It's a one-night-only thing, and uh, yes, the 4K restoration's around the corner, but they've been touring this print around the country ever since it... Uh, ever since news of its existence broke so yeah, yeah it's definitely making the rounds so and we're gonna have the pleasure of seeing that also to, so that's i'm excited about that mm-hmm. what, else, what other news do we have uh, in other news gavin o'connor who directed the accountant has signed on to direct suicide squad 2 so all these reports of Mel Gibson directing it and other people directing Not it happening. just went out the window. Mm. Gavin O'Connor is officially directing the movie, which he's a pretty good director. I'm just still not sold on the idea of a Suicide Squad 2 because mm. I was not a fan of the original. Yeah, that would mean, any means. That would mean being able to sit through the original from start to finish again. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, speaking of directors that are uh, being booted off projects... Uh, <laughs> Bye-bye, Colin Trevorrow. He's not going to do the third Star Wars, uh, the new Star Wars film now. Booted by Kathleen Kennedy. Mm-hmm. I don't know what's going on over at really? Star Wars. Yeah. 
Yeah, That's they said same thing as a Han Solo movie, cited creative differences, and removed him from episode nine. Bye-bye. Mm-hmm. Holy crap. Although, to be fair with uh, this film, you also have the Book of Henry not doing well with yeah. critics or audiences, so they're not going to entrust a huge property like that to a guy that lost as much money as he did with yeah, no kidding. Book of Henry. And Jurassic World, as fun as I thought it was, that does not qualify a person to be able to direct a Star Wars movie. Mm-hmm. These other directors like Ryan Johnson and J.J. Abrams are far beyond what Colin did with Jurassic World. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That was just basically a mishmash of how can we recreate Jurassic Park for a new generation. So, yeah. Mm-hmm. Like the only thing that was any different was the Chris Pratt subplot where he was training the Raptors. The rest of it, it's a note by note carbon copy of the first film. And I thought a lazy one at that anyway. I had fun with it for what it was, and I liked her running around all sweaty and her boobs bouncing. That, <laughs> I was a big fan of that. Bryce Dallas Howard? Yeah. She's got the same expression in every movie. She's <laughs> she like, does. She she's does. like the other side of the coin of Abby Plaza's <laughs> So in regards to Star Wars, they did say that Johnson might actually stay on board to do episode nine, which I think is a great idea. Why not just keep the same director on board? The person that's directing The Last Jedi, why not just, hey, you're already in mode for doing this. Stay on and do the next one. Mm-hmm. Why not? They got to get him to agree to that also. Yeah, more it- money. What's well, also a really big undertaking. Seems pretty to easy to me. Direct yeah. what is really someone else's movie. I mean, yes, they're calling the shots and put their own stamp on it, but at the end of the day, it's still uh, <clears throat> it's basically Disney and Kathleen Kennedy's baby at this point. Yeah, Kathleen Kennedy basically just took it and ran with it, and it's her thing now. Mm-hmm. She's basically George Lucas. Yeah. So, and then <laughs> last but not least. Coming to TV on CBS, there is an L.A. Confidential series in development right now, which I think this has been kind of thrown around a lot in the past. I've heard this a few times before. So, yep, more movies coming to TV. Yay! Mm. Scott looks like he's ready to fall asleep. (laughs) No, I'm here. Fuck you guys. I'm here. So, in new releases this week, we're not going to talk about anything other than It It. comes out tomorrow night. Mm Mm-hmm. See the fucking movie. Don't be dumb. Yeah, I'm gonna, like I said, I'm going to probably end up seeing it next week. Cause it's so worth totally it. Jam-packed. So worth it. What about suggested... <laughs> I can't. <laughs> suggested viewing this week. Chris, what do you, what do you think Jeff this Well, week? for this week, number one, I'm going to suggest it again Jesus because Christ. you're dumb if you don't see it. And <laughs> <laughs> the second one I am going to suggest actually is a film called Residue which I just stumbled across. It's streaming on Amazon, and I believe it's on iTunes, too. Mm -hmm. It's all practical effect, Lovecraftian horror. Oh, man. Like tentacles and shit in closets and people getting their heads blown off and still talking even though their heads are gone. It's completely crazy. It's really slow burn. Very interesting. Residue. Definitely worth it for the visuals. I was sold on this. I saw the poster online i was like oh what the hell is this i'm like this looks so cool yeah so i watched it and uh the guy that plays a cigarette smoking man in the x-files is in this movie he plays one of the villains and then also matt frewer max hedgerum yeah yeah. is in this movie as a gangster so very low budget very digital indie just put out there for streaming services yeah but it's pretty good it's pretty good so that's my suggested Yes. Exactly. Yeah. What the hell's going on with that word today? We can't talk. We can't talk. Andrew. Uh. Well, last Sunday the uh, the long-awaited uh, season finale of Twin Peaks: The Return aired, and uh, um, so far, at taken as a whole, I'm going with that whole series as my personal pick for favorite movie of the year. Even though it was aired on television and it's a long-form series. Uh, beyond that. Um, there was this film I had to watch for uh, Arrow Video as part of this late director Seijin Suzuki's Taisho trilogy, and the film was called Zigunner Weissen, based off of the Serate uh, <laughs> RPM record. And it was all about uh, uh, 
shifting ideologies that were changing throughout uh, Japanese culture in the early 1920s when they began absorbing much more Western ideals and cultural norms. Yeah. And it was a, it was a brief moment in time. And the reason it's named Taisho Trilogy is because of it took place during Emperor Taisho's reign right before Hirohito took over. So that was an intriguing film, and he's kind of the Japanese David Lynch in many ways, just because his films are so wildly innovative from a visual sense, but utterly inscrutable from a a narrative sense. (laughs) So that's my recommendation. I'm going to go with, and I think you've talked about this possibly on the show, Andrew. You gave this to me. I finally got a chance to sit down and watch it uh, this past Monday on Labor Day. Um, Crudo? Uh, Raw. Or Raw or Grave. It's got like three different names, actually. The copy I gave you was it from says Spain. It's called, it's called Raw. Yeah. yeah. Oh, so is, I guess that's Raw is Crudo in Spanish? Mm-hmm. Okay. So, yeah. Well, <laughs> I thought it, had a, it was also called Grave, too. Somebody else called it Grave. Mm-hmm. So it's got a couple of names, I guess. Um, but Andrew was nice enough to facilitate a copy of Raw to me. And yeah, that, I didn't think, I didn't understand. I didn't, no, I'm sorry. I didn't see it going that way. <laughs> Let's, but, it, but it all makes sense as mm-hmm. far as the story is concerned. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't want to spoil it. Uh, but it was a fantastic watch. Nice slow burn too. You know, mm-hmm. it was, it was, uh, creeped along and hmm. you know when the, the when the shit starts to hit the fan the shit really hits the fan mm-hmm. and it's a, a classic narrative also i think of you know you see a person completely transform form from one thing to another in an hour and a half and this mm-hmm. is a, I, I you know i didn't even look up the peep the, the the cast's names uh but the the lead in the film the actress um, she really did a great job of moving her character from one place to another like that, like she did. And tough watch sometimes to watch. Mm-hmm. Um, I guess I can say cannibalism is... Uh, Tasty. It's a focus of this film. <laughs> it's a coming-of-age cannibalism sort of film, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, totally. Um, never seen anything like it. So thank you, Andrew, for giving me a copy of that. Oh, and, you're uh, welcome. Fantastic. It was raw. Really cool flick to watch. Uh, if you haven't seen it, check it out. So, yeah, I'm, I'm moving like an imperial walker right now. I know. I'm just... <laughs> I have no momentum whatsoever. Just don't step on any Ewoks, okay? <laughs> so, we had, we, we've been bouncing ideas around. <laughs> we've been bouncing ideas around about what we want to talk about for this show, and we came to Darren Aronofsky. Which Hell was, yes. Which I'm like, oh, dude, 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 dude. Yeah. Let's do this. So here we are, Darren Aronofsky. Um, now, the list, I, you know, I did I did a little bit of prep here. And, you know, he, he's written a lot of his own films, too, along with directing. Um, you know, he's done production work, too. Uh, I guess, well, I, do we just want to take the, you know, the, the obvious ones for this show? I mean, I, mean, I think we should start with Pi. Yeah, I was really, going to say, let's, yeah. let's go with the broad strokes with the with, with his real epic flicks. Because yeah. I don't think uh, Protozoa, his first film, is commercially available. Um, I think he did that for the AFI, and it either is just in the archives or it didn't get a commercial release of any kind. This is It's not even I'm on the sheet that I... Oh, no, there it is. It's a short from 1993. Apparently Lucy Liu was in it. Oh, really? Yeah, he's had four or five shorts that he did before... Pi, but mm. Pi was really yeah. his first time his first out re- to bat. You yeah, know? yeah, yeah, totally. right. So, and that yeah. was um, his first film with his production company, Protozoa Films. Um, I think after his short film, Protozoa, just every picture he's done has had that production logo on it. It's on the trailer for Mother as well. Oh, yeah. But anyway, I'm we'll get jumping to we'll get, no, we'll no, get to that. Fine. We'll get to We're that, fine. brother. Uh, Pi. I remember seeing the trailer for this when it first came out, and you know, trailers don't convince me that much nowadays. I mean, trailers are fun to watch. We all know. But to me, a lot of times, trailers are just what's in the way of me watching the movie that I actually want to see. I'm sure we all have felt like that yes. from time to time. 
Pi is one of the only trailers I know I've seen in my short existence that when I saw the trailer, that and the Clerks trailer, I was like, okay, I got to see this flick. It totally turned me on. Pi was one of those, as I said, and it just, it drew me right in. There was just something so ethereal about that movie that I've never seen. It may have been the black and white also. That kind of was like, you know, you know, black. That was, you know, Clerks was black and white also. I mean, that's actually, I'm not trying to draw a line between the two, but that did interest me. I'm like, whoa, black and white. This had a very different kind of black and white too. It had reversal stock, um, high contrast black and white, which uh, is slightly overexposed. It's a little grittier than uh, usual. It's a lot harder to develop from what I understand. They said that... For every take, they didn't know in the developmental process if it was going to come out looking right or not. But it it was a gamble, but it worked. It gave the film a, a unique look that other films don't have. And see, that's amazing to me just in itself that somebody is going to film something not knowing how it's going to look before processing. Yeah. Just taking that risk alone mm-hmm. automatically sets him up to be like one of the greatest directors ever. Yeah. Well, it's balls. Honestly. It's, that, it is. Those are balls right there. I mean, it, yeah. and I think, you know, you want to try something like this. You're stuck to your constitution and I want to do this, but it might not work out. I mean, that does take a lot of constitution to try to, make something like that happen. So, yeah, I, and not knowing that until now, yeah, that makes my respect for this this man <laughs> in, <laughs> grow and grow. In just one movie, there were so many things being introduced that I hadn't seen done in the movies before, particularly, particularly the use of sound, like a lot of sounds that you wouldn't associate with the images you're seeing. Um they, he does that a lot more in his following film, Requiem for a Dream. Oh, God. But the use of sound was very key to uh, the surreal experience in in uh, Pi. Also, the camera work, the use of the Snorri Cam, which is this apparatus harness that physically attaches the camera to the actor's body. So when they're moving, their headspace is in the center of the shot in a fixed position and everything behind them, the background moves around. So you're seeing this really strange perspective that um, was used very early on in Scorsese movies, but not the way Aronofsky uses it in Pi. There was a couple of shots like that in his apartment, I think, when he was just like totally flipping the fuck out. Mm-hmm. That you saw him, yeah. And he would, I think there was one shot, especially with the, with that cam, that uh, he just fell. Mm-hmm. And you're like, well, what the hell happened? <laughs> you can't really tell what's happening, mm-hmm. you know? Uh, and, and it's very unique looking, mm-hmm. like you said. It's very cool. Uh, I like films. I mean, sci-fi is, you know, I, 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 the, the older I get, the more I'm just immersed in sci-fi and things like that. Um, this film, I wouldn't consider it sci-fi, but it has, I think, elements like, you know, I, I guess I'm more into technical films too, films that make you think a lot about things, I and mean, that's what sci-fi really does. It's like, oh, mm-hmm. <laughs> that could be an idea. Um, this film introduces technical ideas, mathematics, uh, you know, very nerdy concepts. Which you think, how do you make this work in a film? Mm-hmm. Uh, Aronofsky does. Mm-hmm. Um, I would still quantify this or qualify this as science fiction, though. You think so? Because it deals with science in math and it's it's a fictional yeah, tale. Yeah, so it deals with science rides, and math. I mean, it, it, but it isn't like you're, you know, when you say the term, and I, I mean, maybe I'm really quanti- quantizing this a lot, but, you know, when I say sci-fi, I mean, we're not talking about spaceships in the future. This is something very rooted in real, at the time, everyday well, life. Well, there were a number of things that were kind of heightened or exaggerated, like he's given this Ming Mecca chip to affix yeah. to his computer. I mean, those don't yeah. exist. It was made for the movie. And then you have... Uh, his computer, Euclid, which looks like a, a giant Commodore 64, and it's got all these ducts and uh, uh, screws coming out of it, and it produces like this organic s- substance. I mean, there's a number of things happening in the movie that are either, it's either entirely in his head or it's a science fiction element that's playing out. Yeah. And they don't tell you, you're not sure as you're watching it. I, I've always thought that, Pi really, you know the the story of the film really is a story of a person going insane. Mm-hmm. It's all it really is. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's a lot of stuff happening around the character, um, 
but really it is it's just it's a narrative of someone just going insane losing mm -hmm. their mind well and it's very similar thematically to everything else he's done in his career because mm -hmm. yeah. even when we're going to talk about, talk about noah in a little while it's still that same you know obsession leading to madness madness and it, a destructive behavior yeah. Same thing with Requiem, too. Mm -hmm. Same mm -hmm. thing with Black Swan. He really repeats a lot of these themes over and over and over again yeah. every fucking time. It's perfection. Mm -hmm. Yeah. How is this possible? You well, know, seriously, how is it possible for somebody to continue making good movie after good movie after well, good movie? Well, mm -hmm. and you, you, I'm sure people out there are saying, well, it just he just follows the same thing. Well, yeah. It's it's unique to his style. It's unique to his writing, but they're all very. They still make me anxious. They still keep me interested. Mm -hmm. um, they're still very different. Mm -hmm. Right. So they, they probably uh, make you anxious because they do have a lot of anxiety in them. I mean, anxiety and uh, fear and and depression. Uh, the the mood of the downbeat mood is running through all of his movies they're all sort of downtrodden concerning downtrodden characters um, yeah it, they really work to put you in a headspace so yeah too. and well speaking of downtrodden characters yeah requiem for a dream mm -hmm. <laughs> Fuck. I, I don't think people were ready for this film when it came out it's one of those. I mean, we all know it's one of the. It's it's an iconic film now. I mean, and we we're always making jokes about you know the, some we you'll you'll see a line you know, ass to ass. I mean, that <laughs> right there is seeing that for the first time. I'm like, I know what that meant, we, but I couldn't believe I was seeing it. We joke about it because in the context of our show, it's funny. Yeah, but when it's actually happening in the movie you're experiencing one of the most emotional things that's ever been put on the screen. Mm. All of this is being thrown at you at the same well, yeah, time. Well, you're yeah, mm. you're seeing three lives unravel. Yeah. Four. Four. Oh, yeah, four. I'm sorry. Yeah, you're right. Four yeah. lives unravel completely. Um, and they're all being done... Simultaneously. Yeah, it's all happening side by side. You know, you're getting cuts of it, but it's all happening basically at the same time. What really makes that film work as well as it does is the three kids are you know they're they're going to get what's coming to them you still feel for them because their fates are so horrible but yeah. they made their beds but it's really the the mother sarah goldfarb played excellently by ellen burston who should have won the oscar that year she should she was have. nominated of course um, lost to julia roberts for aaron brockovich <laughs> yeah aaron brockovich was a good movie but she should have gotten yeah, it, yeah, one hundred percent, absolutely. I mean, yeah. it's another, it's another. As I said about about Raw a few minutes ago, I mean, you're mm -hmm. watch you you watch where she starts. You know, she didn't start from a good place. Mm -hmm. Um, well, but where she ends up, mm -hmm. Jesus Christ, it's well, tough. it's tough to even think about it. It well, is. The thing of it is, is her her perspective is the most innocent. I mean, the three kids, they know what they're doing is wrong. But Sarah Goldfarb, her character is completely innocent, and in a way, she uh, she suffers the most of all. Um, well, uh, another another horrendous scene in this film is when she's in the hospital, and you just have those two orderlies talking about. I, I think they were talking about a date or fucking some chick yeah, or whatever. Yeah, and, and they're getting her ready for uh, well, forced feeding. Yeah, they're force feeding her. You know, and so and you. And you the camera work on that, and maybe you can explain this, Andrew. The camera work on that was unique, also, because you know you're kind of getting like her face, and you're hearing the conversation, mm. and as they're force feeding her, uh, it looks like oatmeal or something like that. Um, that hurts to watch that. Maybe mm -hmm. it's because I'm in a weakened state right now. Maybe maybe this wasn't the greatest idea to talk about these films tonight. I'm fucking <laughs> this. I'm gonna start crying <laughs> on the show because um, I I did I really and you're right, Andrew. I really did feel for for her character. So I, let's talk about the sound design for for Requiem for a Dream because yeah. it's even more advanced than what he did in Pi. I mean, not just the fact that this was his first color film went from uh, you know the reversal stock black and white to this very rich and lush color. Um, the sound design, like when they're doing, when they're shooting up a drug, there are these rapid fire edits of extreme symmetrical close-ups yes! of yes. the needle wow. and the syringe, and you hear these really non-diegetic sounds that you know are cannot possibly be there, but they 
drive home the rush that these characters are feeling as they're getting high. It does have a look like, and I'm not trying to like compare these guys at all, but Guy Ritchie's style, at least in Snatch and like Lockstock, you'd have those fast cuts. The fast cuts, yes. Which kind of represented like something happening. But with Aronofsky, he did it with a he he used repetition and uh, structuralism in such a way that he he made it his own style. Like take for instance the scenes where uh, Sarah Goldfarb's is grabbing the remote control and turning the TV on. Yeah, he yeah. uses the same cut. It's a rapid fire cut of her swiping the remote and hitting the on button. Yeah, and in Pi, there's a repeated. Uh, repeated shot of him popping pills or mm-hmm. lo- locking and unlocking every door lock on his uh, apartment room door. And they're all done in these symmetrical mathematical close-ups. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, the, the, the shots when, <laughs> when they shoot up what you were talking about a second ago. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. Those are, you feel it like mm-hmm. that's like you actually like, okay, that's what it's like to be high. <laughs> or be on heroin, I guess. I don't know. Um, the film also makes evocative use of split screen, like split screen, like I've yes. never seen. Like usually, it's just side by side, and they do use it quite extensively. But they use vertical split screen, where it's at the top and bottom. I've never seen that in any other movie, but this one. Tough film to watch. Well, and the crazy uh. thing is about this movie is people tell me I'm nuts, but this is one of my favorite movies of all time. Oh, yeah. yeah. And I can watch it. I can repeatedly watch this movie. Same. No matter how depressing the subject matter is, you know, you've got Jennifer Connelly, Ellen Burstyn, Marlon Wayans mm-hmm. doing a phenomenal performance yeah. And yeah. that you would never expect yeah. from this guy. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's all comedy from him. Yeah. And he does this awesome heroin addicted dramatic role mm-hmm. and he's totally believable and then of course jared leto who we just knew from tv for the most part at that point he hadn't had and a, music too i mean he was yeah in, he was in fight club also uh, right but fight club hadn't had it already been out at this point i think it had okay um yeah it was out before before requiem but this was like his first major yeah. like lead role mm-hmm. and it's terrifying to yeah. see this pretty boy Jared Leto become a shell of a person yeah. due to the constant abuse of the drugs. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I Although know. of the characters in the movie, his character deserves his fate. And maybe Jennifer Connelly's too. The Marlon Wayans character, I, I actually felt more sympathetic to him than anyone else. If, if anyone was going to get away clean, it was him because he was the only one who didn't delude themselves like, like, Ellen Burson's character, you know, she was going to be on television no matter what. Or if Harry Goldfarb doesn't shoot up into this gangrenous sore in his arm, he'll blow the dream. He yeah. says, I'll blow it if I don't. So, yeah. Well, there is the cuts with Marlon Wayne's character with his mother. Mm-hmm. And that was at towards the end of the film. It's a know, faint glimmer of hope for oh, a split second. Fucking horrible. Yeah, <laughs> it's fucking horrible, man. But he may he may live on. I I think that the other three they're they're doomed. But well, he really was a victim of on. racism at the end. Yeah, that, that's really what happened to him. He he became a victim of racism, and of, I mean of the three, I think he yeah, he, he may have been the healthiest. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Dare I say? I mean, he may have been the healthiest. He didn't yeah. seem to be totally fucking strung out like they like the other two were. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, it, this. Yeah, and I can watch this movie over and over again too. Mm-hmm. You know, it really is a fantastic. I mean, it's a feast for the eyes. It looks so cool. It well, sounds the, so cool. The it, score by Clint Mansell. Sorry, what were you oh, saying? I was just gonna say, it's not often that you get a movie like this where people actually really put themselves into the roles in almost escape into that character. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. With this movie. It's like that. I'm not really watching Jared Leto or Jennifer Connelly on the screen. These people actually become these characters in the film, and I think mm-hmm. that's another thing because as scummy as they are and as downtrodden as they are, and they're doing all these horrible things, repeatedly stealing his mom's TV to pawn it, Yeah, you still relate to them, and you relate to their struggle of everything that's going on around them. Even as to a certain degree, you're standing outside of their plight. You still have empathy for them. Um, let's talk about the music. Uh, Clint Mansell scored Aronofsky's first film. It was sort of an industrial techno uh, techno sound with a number of other electronic artists 
music sampled in between. Yeah. But for this, this was his first score where he used classically trained musicians to perform the music, in this case, the Kronos Quartet, which added those really mournful uh, strings to the soundtrack. And the the film itself, because of the ending with Jennifer Connelly, was given an NC-17, and rather than cut it down to an R, Aronofsky persuaded artists and entertainment to release it unrated. So not too many people saw the film when it came out except video. But the music, the main theme for the movie, started showing up in trailers and television shows and it just became its own beast its own thing it became synonymous with american movies and with people immediately thought of this movie and and knew of it just by the music (laughs) i know i'm depressed now man (laughs) yeah no, I mean, no, and, I I and, love no, this movie. I just love it. No, I adore I, I, it. I, it's not. It's not, yeah. It's it's not. It's 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 an artistic ugh, artistic depression. It's like you know, it takes you to a certain place. But you know, it's it's we we know it's a film. It's a, it's. I know it's pretty baby, but I didn't bring it out for you. That's my <laughs> fucking favorite line from the movie. So terrible. <laughs> what about the fountain? Oh man, that's my favorite film of his. But it's his most divisive. It's so beautiful, for many people. I think visually it's beautiful. It's so beautiful. stunning. Yeah, movie. Beautiful. I've only seen it once. I've seen it two times. I only see it once. Andrew's uh, seen it 165. Uh, Andrew, dive even, in. Maybe even more than that. Well, <laughs> this the project was in gestation for I think six years, and it was going to be like an 80 million dollar movie with maybe 70 million. I'm not quite sure. With Brad Pitt and Kate Blanchett in the lead roles, and they were shooting in Australia when. Brad Pitt pulled out and the film fell apart and it was put in turnaround for I think two to three years and this film was either not going to get made or he was going to reshape it and tighten the budget of some of the more sprawling set pieces so he revised the script rebudgeted it at 35 million and reached out to Hugh Jackman for the role and so they made this movie with all those visual elements and two huge actors for $35 million. Well, it gets better. All of the, <laughs> all, most of the visual effects in the movie are not done with CGI. There's a little bit here and there, but most of it is not only practical, but many of the real, the outer space vistas of yeah. this bubble ship traveling through nebulae. Those are uh, chemical reactions and microorganisms filmed in petri dishes under a microscope so it's micro photography they're using actual organisms instead that, of cgi so are you kidding me that's that's how they saved on the production cost for the movie i mean they really were cutting corners and what better way to cut corners with you know space photography than uh, to use existing material and mm-hmm, film it mm-hmm. that that's blown I'm in no shape to be doing this. My mind's just being blown every every second here about this guy. This this is a really heavy movie, though, too. It's heavy. God, but it's, it's heavy. almost heavy in a different way mm-hmm. than Requiem mm-hmm. because this movie, it's tragic in its own ways, but this is another movie about love where you know that same comparison can be made to Requiem, but it's more leans towards sci-fi elements in a way too mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yeah well, it, there's a lot you know and it, it, it's the same thing like you're saying the unraveling it's a lot someone just fucking coming apart it's <laughs> a lot dreamier than his earlier movies yeah there's an even even less of a line dividing reality from fantasy there's a lot of overt fantasy in the film and uh you're not really sure even though you're seeing it unfold you're not really sure what to say about what happens at the end. It's one of those films that, uh, sort of like the Stargate at the end of 2001, it, it becomes utterly transcendent in the third act, and you feel like you're watching pure cinema unfold rather than conventional narrative storytelling. It's understandable why the film divided a lot of viewers, but it it boils down to pure visual art in the, the final scenes. Well, because the entire movie is very, very unconventional. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think that's what threw me off the first time I saw it. Because mm-hmm. I was thinking, oh, this is going to be more straight sci-fi from mm-hmm. Aronofsky. Mm-hmm. And then when I saw it, I was kind of like, oh, this is really not, you know, a straight 
narrative story. There's a lot going on that you really need to be paying attention to. Yeah. There's like so. three distinctly different narratives all involving the same actor, possibly the same character. One is medieval Spain, modern day America, and what appears to be the future, the deep future yeah. in outer space. And Hugh Jackman's character sports different haircuts for each one, the long hair, the conquistador, the mm. the short haircut of the doctor, and the completely bald, bald uh, yeah. cosmonaut. And the film cut cross-cuts between all three of these seemingly disparate stories, and then, spoiler, they begin to converge and intrude on one another. And it's at that point you're trying to figure out, well, what's he saying with the connections being right, made? Right, right. So it's a film that... Um, Unlike Requiem or, uh, well, I'd say actually it's closer to Pi than Requiem because Requiem, you have a pretty good idea of what to think about yeah, the proceedings and the yeah. fo- the fountain, you're not sure. Well, the fountain's much, it, it, it is a lot like Pi. It's very, because Pi is dissonant in its own way and obviously the fountain is, it's dissonant also. There's just, the, the, it's very spacey and dreamy like you said. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's it's the beautiful film to watch. Mm-hmm. I, I, it's so soft. You know, I mean, if I, if I could com- compare it to anything like recent, it would be like The Arrival. And I think that maybe the, the camera work, I mean, it's very, it has a very soft look to it also. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the music's soft. I mean, it, it don't, there's heavy shit happening, but I, I think the blow is numbed a little bit because you're not having like, you know, fast camera work happening all the time or, you know, yelling or, you know, things blowing up. It's, you know, it's, it's a much softer blow. Mm-hmm. I yes. think in a way it's, people are going to fucking want to kill me for making this comparison, but kind of similar to cloud Atlas in a way too. Dude, you read my mind. Multiple narratives going on and they're all intertwining with each other mm-hmm. over time and well, space. I so. could, you know, when we were talking about Requiem for a dream, actually cloud Atlas popped in my brain because, you know, at the end of Requiem, we see all these, these characters just coming unraveled. You're, it's a similar thing with all the different stories in Cloud Atlas where you have all these climaxes happening at the same time yep. also mm-hmm. in all these different stories. I mean, it's a similar idea, I think, and I can see where you're coming from, Chris. Um, but not quite as at the real, you know. It's, it's I don't know. Yeah. No, I know what you're saying. And that's the thing, Aaron, I, at least for me um, – there's, there's some things I just can't explain. As only he can. Yeah. You know, it may, it may be Andrew. And maybe Andrew. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's sort of what people bring to it as well. But I think it, the pretty obvious message that the fountain is giving is it's, it's about a man confronting his fear of dying. Because mm-hmm. ostensibly the story appears to be that he's trying to save his wife from dying. But in reality, it's about him dealing with his own fear of dying. Because she's she's warming up to the idea, she's easing into accepting the idea of death, and the more she opens her arms to it, the more and more he he pushes himself away from accepting it. He mm-hmm. willfully goes in the opposite direction, and the movie's trying to figure out the point where he changes his mind. I think. Yeah, I need to see it again. Yeah, because like I said, I've only seen it twice. So I think this is one that I need to dig a little Spend deeper into. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, because it's not that I don't like the movie. I like the movie. Oh, I love but it. I need to like really sit down and watch it. Watch it. Well, it's it's, it's abstract, like we were saying. So it's not as easy to just go out and watch this flick. You know, um, it's like- very dense. Also, there's a lot of subliminal imagery in the film, like uh, like repeated shots, but s- s- designed at different times. Like there's a there's an overhead shot looking upside down at a character running towards the camera and it's repeated through three different periods of times, so whether it's a bubble ship careening towards the camera, a car, or in the medieval period, a conquistador on a horse, uh, riding on horseback. Hmm. So there's a there's a theme being built up of the more things change over time, the more they stay the same. Yeah. But it's done entirely through uh, visual terms. Let's talk about The Wrestler, because I just watched this again the other night. So did I. In this movie, it's such a downer, dude. Mm-hmm. This may be my favorite. Well, I mean, I haven't seen every little thing he's done. So, I mean, this, but of everything I've seen from Darren, 
this may be my favorite. I think there. I guess I can relate to it the most because you know it's. I, I watched wrestling as a kid, and like we were we were actually chatting briefly before the show, and you know you're right, Andrew. There were some lines that that movie clearly drew or took inspiration from too. From people that maybe I grew up watching, uh, Jake the Snake, like, completely Jake the Snake. Jake, yeah. Jake the Snake. Snake Roberts. Well, specifically the sequences with his daughter in uh, Beyond the Mat, the Barry Blaustein documentary, the yeah. the tense relationship and discord between father and daughter, Jake the Snake and his daughter. Uh, you can see it in every scene involving Mickey Rourke and Evan Rachel Wood. Mm-hmm. There's also in the hardcore match, uh, when you see him backstage, he's smoking a cigarette, coughing, and the doctors are trying to pry all these staples out of him. Again, lifted right out of, uh, I don't want to say lifted, inspired by... He was smoking? Uh, yeah. He was smoking in that scene. Yes. Yes. When uh, they're prying the staples out, he's smoking a cigarette before he has his heart attack. And oh, wow. in Beyond the Met, you literally see Terry Funk doing the exact same thing. It plays out almost identically. Really? So there was a lot of uh, a lot of real instances of real life that they were putting into this film. But it was also semi-autobiographical for its actor, Mickey Rourke. And the film is, is as much about Randy the Ram the Wrestler as it is about Mickey Rourke and his fall from grace. Yeah, I mean... <sighs> Because <laughs> that was a hard fall mm-hmm. from well, grace. Mm-hmm. Seriously. I think Mickey, I said it before, I think this movie was just, yeah. It, 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 Mickey Rourke didn't even have to, I don't think he really had to act. It was <laughs> just, <laughs> it came from a very real place, definitely. Yeah. It, it just, it looked so, I mean, the thing I loved about this character, you know, uh, Randy the Ram, or Ramalam. Ramalam. Robin Ramzinski. Yeah, Robin yeah. Ram- um, you know, of all, uh, the guy was down and out. He's just he's 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 a, he's a shit bag. He's just he's 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 got nothing. Well, he's fucked his entire he's life up. His he's, entire he, life. Up. Yeah. He did what so many of these people do. He gets involved with wrestling, and yeah. that just becomes his obsession and yeah. his life. Same thing with all the other Aronofsky movies. Obsession. Mm. Yeah. Mm. You know. But I mean, I think I look I looked at that at the you know. There's a one scene where you see the inside of his van. Mm. It's got all those pictures of him, like from you know his his prime, and it's like okay, so this guy was the biggest guy in the world at one time. We've seen this happen. He's mm. one of the biggest his glory wrestlers. days have long since passed. Long since passed, you know. And I'm going. And the first thing I say is, okay, motherfucker, where all your money go? <laughs> you know mm. I mean? Oh yeah, because yeah. if that were me, I'd be socking that, be shit, that shit away. Yeah. But you know, but at the same time, you never know. Until you're in that situation, mm-hmm. um, you know I I've watched a bunch of wrestling documentaries, like you know, in the the early days of you know uh, NWA, AWA, early days of WWF, mm-hmm. uh, and these guys all say the same thing. Ro- uh, there's the actual Roddy Piper documentary, for example, yeah. which I've always I found that man more fascinating as just as a as a person. As any, and I thought he was the baddest wrestler when I was a little kid. I thought he was the toughest thing that ever walked in the ring with a bagpipe, you know, yeah. battalion behind him wearing a kilt, you know. But he talks about um, one of the things he talked about. He's like, well, back when we were like really, this was our job. He's like, we were beating ourselves to death mm-hmm. 350 days out of the year. Well, and mm-hmm. those wrestlers, I, I'm when I'm watching, I watch this again. On Sunday night, because you had talked about it a couple weeks ago about, ago about how oppressive this movie is. Yeah. And I was like, I want to experience that again. I want to really see how oppressive this movie is. Yeah, yeah. And it is. It really, really is. And the entire time I'm watching it, I'm thinking about, holy shit, like you said a minute ago, had everything, lost everything, probably by mm. being a total dickweed yeah. and blowing all his money on blow in drugs, in strippers, in mm-hmm. whatever else he can. Now he's living out of a van with a little Randy the Ram action figure yeah. that's worth three hundred dollars on mm-hmm. eBay. Yeah, uh, and he's basically just like a shell of a person now. There's nothing left of him. But there still in this is. Movie. There, there's still well, there is though. I think there so, still is. Go ahead, Andrew. So stylistically, um, this film was. This- 
We're, we're into the emotional aspect. Yeah. And Andrew's like, I want to talk about the fucking technical shit. Go. Right, yeah. because, I mean, <laughs> we're talking about one of the most technically proficient filmmakers and technically innovative filmmakers out there. And uh, he was doing things other filmmakers weren't doing before. And then he does The Wrestler and does something completely different. Goes for this sort of meat and potatoes, gritty, handheld uh, camera work that really looked a lot like Rocky. It looked very like the yeah. John Gia Vildson Rocky. It does. It really does. And, you know, didn't really go for any sort of heightened visuals. Kept the sound design to a minimum. I mean, he did make extensive use of sound inside the ring, and you hear ringing in the ears, or in, in one case when he's going through the humiliation of working at the the deli counter oh man the camera's following behind him and you hear the people cheering in the ring yeah yeah i love that through. part i love that he goes through and the sound cuts to silence that dream of hearing the the roar of the crowd is is over yeah in that instant and that's the reality of what he's in but otherwise extra money but otherwise the film is uh very subdued not the typical aronofsky at all uh, except for the themes and uh his interest in the characters, but all of the the surrealism and the psychedelia and the uh, hallucinatory elements that's that's all shoved aside for this one. If if anything, it's his most normal, straightforward film. Agreed. The only one that's not a psychodrama, theoretically. I this movie. There's so many lines from the movie that just are stuck in my head. Mm-hmm. You know, and that's why I say, like, this oppression the film has. I mean, it's so suffocating. Mm-hmm. There's a little glimmer of hope. Because I, you know, I may have been incorrect in saying that because, you know, there is a, there is, there's a, you know, if it was, a, if we were on a graph here, the movie's just like, oh, shit, 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 down, down, down. Yeah. yeah. Da, 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 right? Yeah. That's all it is. Um, the scene where his daughter finally just, you know, that, that was killing me when, you know, because he's just, he fucked up yeah. hard. For the umpteenth time, presumably. Yeah. yeah, but and he's just sitting there holding her. She's mm-hmm. letting him hold her. Yeah. That's what I thought was interesting. He's sitting there holding her, and he's like, you know, literally talking in her ear, and but she, at the same time, she's saying, I don't ever want to see you again. Don't and, ever come here again. Well, fuck you. You're a fuck he, up. Yeah. I don't want to have anything to ever do with you again. And Get just, out. Yeah. Actually, yep. what got me even before that was she was going on about, you know, I hate you, and I know you hate me, and she says... This is when she starts to divorce herself from him. She says, you know what? I don't hate you. I don't even like you. Like, immediately mm. distancing, finding a way to distance herself from him. Yeah. Like, yeah. you know, I could hate you because this emotional connection is there, but I don't feel anything for you now because you're dead to me. Yeah, yeah. And, the, you know, that, and that's really where the film just... Mm-hmm. You're like, okay, this is, this is fucking done, dude. This guy's... You know, and he, and he knows he's going to die. Mm-hmm. He but, knows he's going to die. But then again, it's like most Aronofsky films, the it's left open-ended to interpretation. You're not sure and, if he dies or not. Uh, All I know no, he could live. No, I don't I, I I'm from, I'm pretty at least I'm convinced. He, I mean, he they died. give an overwhelming impression that he died, but you're not sure. They don't they don't tell you for certain. It's left open. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I I would never wanted to see what happened after that. Mm-hmm. I don't want to see that. I like the way that <laughs> film ended. Mm-hmm. Like just you know, okay, it is open ended, but because if he did die, he he died doing what well, he loved. Well, I think it 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 sums it up right before he goes out for that last time. Mm-hmm. You know, look, the world doesn't give a fuck about me. The only place I get hurt is out there. Yeah, yeah. You know that that and that whole thing he laid, that trip he laid out. I was like, that's it, man. Yeah, this is and this, you know he finally realized like this is it. This is all I can do. This is all I care about. He couldn't be at deli counter. No, that that scene killed me when I saw that too. Just like, hey, you look familiar. Could you imagine being that? Mm-hmm. Could you imagine being that famous of a person and being reduced to that? So I'm gonna go Fuck. off. On, I'm gonna go off on a little side tangent do just it. to fill in some info about his visual style. His first three movies were shot by Matthew Libatique, who is a world-class cinematographer, but I don't know if they had a falling out or they just had a lot of conflict, but they didn't work together on The Wrestler. Uh, I think Matthew Libatique said The Fountain was the most frustrating job of his career in terms of lighting that tree set. Anyway, Maurice mm-hmm. Alberti, who shot Happiness, 
uh, shot, <laughs> <laughs> shot the wrestler, and coincidentally later on went on to shoot Creed, which has a very similar look to yeah. the wrestler. So anyway, he goes from the symmetrical uh, rapid fire editing look to this gritty handheld look, and then his next movie, which we're about to talk about, Black Swan. Yeah, he returned to working with Matthew Labatique, who created another new style out of the look of his last movie. He sort of continued the look, the gritty handheld widescreen look of The Wrestler, but he also put his own uh, unique touches from the earlier Aronofsky films into it. And in a way, that film is a companion piece to The Wrestler because it's about performance art, but instead of wrestling from the macho male perspective, it's... The female perspective. And ballerina dancing. Yeah, I love this movie too. I really, I've watched this a ton of times. Mm-hmm. My only complaint about this movie is that it reminds me of Fight Club. The conclusion reminds me of Fight Club. And I just that spin they put on it. Yeah, just that was the one problem I have with Black Swan. Um, I'm gonna go. My only problem is that it's very similar to the movie which many are calling it a live-action remake of uh, Perfect Blue, this oh, that's right. anime film by the late Satoshi Khan. Um, going back to Requiem for a Dream for the scene where Jennifer Connelly, she's just finished with Big Tim, and her head is submerged underwater in the bathtub, and she starts screaming. That entire shot was lifted from Perfect Blue, and Aronofsky actually, for that one shot purchased the remake rights to the movie so he could cut and paste it. Oh, really? So years go by, and here comes Black Swan, and it's very, very like Perfect Blue, like down to a number of shots that echo it completely, like all the mirrors talking, all the photographs talking on her wall when she looks out the subway window and sees her reflection looking back at her. Um number of the scenes where she's facing the crowd and there's bright blinding white light in front of her it can all be traced to Khan's film so the fact that it's a, a little bit derivative was problematic for me but at the same time the craftsmanship and the the ensemble acting and uh, the totality of Aronofsky's uh, taking this character's descent into madness as far as it can go um, I still find the film commendable, even if it is derivative. But anyway. Oh, yeah, I really enjoy the movie. And honestly, I think this is probably Natalie Portman's best movie. Oh, yeah. And also Mila Kunis. Like, mm-hmm. she normally doesn't do stuff like this. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of refreshing seeing actresses like this that typically don't take more experimental roles or more adult-oriented roles and mm-hmm. see them run with something like this. Mm-hmm. Plus Barbara Hershey in this movie is kind of the same as Ellen Burstyn was in Requiem, this Mm -hmm. obsessive mother who's kind of going down the rabbit hole of obsession herself. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So terrifically underrated performance. Everybody talks about, uh, uh, Natalie Portman, but very few talk about Barbara Hershey and she's, she's splendid in the movie. She really makes you, uh, you feel the oppression that she's imposing on her daughter. And Vincent Cassell, like seriously. Fantastic. He can do no wrong. I've never seen him in a movie that he didn't basically steal the show. Mm -hmm. Everything he's in, he's, yeah, even if the movie's bad, he kind of outshines the film or Mm -hmm. outshines the material he's given. Honestly, would you fuck that girl? I mean, only he could have sold that. Incidentally, the guy that was chuckling when he made that comment wound up marrying Natalie Portman. The in that scene, yeah. the other ballerina yeah. uh, coach that's working with her, uh, real life ballerina coach, and they wound up getting married. Oh, that's, that's so crazy. sweet. Yeah, that's so sweet. That's and the lesbian scene. I mean, without a doubt, one of the best scenes of all time. <laughs> And one of the most horrific when you look at it in context. And it's it's a pretty freaking scary scene, too. Like, it really is. It really is. Like, Mia Lacunas, you think that's her going down on her, and then her head lifts up, and it's somebody completely different. 
And the movie's constantly toying with you like that, using CGI to change the actor's face at the drop of a hat, so you're not really sure who, who you're yeah. looking at or what's happening. Well, and that end dance sequence also mm. is very much like Requiem, where everything is all hitting at once. Mm-hmm. Everything comes to this just giant climax, mm-hmm. and you feel the tension behind that. Yeah. he just He's the master of creating that. Mm-hmm. I could just go on and I, I'm going to jerk him off. <laughs> if I ever see him, Darren, I'm jerk him off. Tell him that. Yeah. Darren, listen, man. Hey, listen, dude. Listen, bro. You want a, you want a black swan handy? Oh, God. <laughs> I'm in no shape for this. I'm falling apart over here. This is the quietest you've ever been on a show, Scott. I, I, I'm sorry. I'm just like... I, I like no cylinders left. I'm, I'm, I'm here. I'm, 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 so, I'm here, fuckers. Fuck so, you guys. You know, Aronofsky, up to this point, yeah. uh, The Fountain did not do well. It was a $35 million movie, did not do well at the box office. It bombed. But The Wrestler and uh, Black Swan were made for relatively small budgets, I mm-hmm. think under $10 million. The Black Swan became a runaway hit and took in something like over $300 million at the box office around wow. the world. That's for, insane. For this paltry little budget... They made a killing, so he instantly got catapulted into the mainstream. He was no longer this little indie director. He was in the big leagues, yeah. which gave him carte blanche to do probably his most flawed but his most ambitious epic with the biggest price tag behind it to date. Noah. Noah. I'll be honest. I have not one problem with Noah. Didn't mean you – did we see this together? We did. Yeah, we did, and I went back and saw it in IMAX a few days later. I had a one-week IMAX engagement. I think the combination of a director who is usually associated with making like independent or films that are considered more art school or Mm -hmm. not mainstream, I think it's really a great idea to give them a project like this mm-hmm. that would normally be, you know, it's a higher budget film mm-hmm. with tons of effects shots. I think it was really just very interesting to see him do something like this mm-hmm. completely outside his wheelhouse. Although it was and it wasn't because in, in this case it, it had, it was going back to much of the imagery of the fountain. There's a number of motifs in it that you can trace right back to the fountain, like the the seed that Methuselah gives Noah to plant to create the trees that the, right. that the rock giants will use to build the ark. We'll get to those things in a minute. I love them. And, uh, and the seed he uses is the same one that Tommy Creo plants above Izzy's grave in the fountain. And you see yeah. it at the end of the fountain. Um number of images of a plant sprouting up instantly, yeah. like a flower sprouting up instantly, trees sprouting up instantly. Um, at one point, the, the Big Bang during the creationism montage is actually is actually the special effects shot of the nebula exploding at the end of the fountain. It's just repurposed into Noah. So there's a number of areas where Noah is just like the fountain, which I found really surprising because that movie really ruined him commercially, at least for a short time. The Fountain. Yes. And for him to go back and revisit that imagery, I found really daring. Like, this was the movie that that almost ended your career. But now that he's married it to the subject of Noah, the film wound up becoming his first true blockbuster. I think it was his first movie to open up at number one around the world at the box office when it came out well the cool thing for me is i'm an atheist i don't believe in the church or whatnot so for this this was actually a very interesting idea to see somebody take a story that's supposedly true who knows Mm. if any of it really happened but to take the story of noah which is basically worshipped you know Worldwide, mm. everybody knows the story of yeah. Noah. It's probably one and, of those famous stories from the Bible. And to put his own spin on it, mm-hmm. that was very brave. To have the rock monsters, mm. to throw things into this, to make it more like a blockbuster, mm-hmm. I thought was very, very brave of mm-hmm. him. And it was outside the box. Because mm-hmm. I think most people, church-oriented people that went to go see this, were expecting 
a more standard story of Noah. And then these little things were thrown in there, and it really pissed them off. Yeah. It, it pissed a lot of people off. It, it didn't play like a Bible movie. It played like a science fiction fantasy reinterpretation of the Bible story. And it uh, almost every other scene, they were subverting what people thought they knew about the flood, like the water's coming up from underground yeah. at one point. The arc is rectangular, and it, it doesn't have this thing where the animals are perched on the deck to look at all the water it's just this oblong monolith um you have all of the fantastical creatures that couldn't possibly exist yeah. in any reality yeah they, for all we know they were pre-exist pre-existing species that have some since gone extinct so that was like there's an armadillo dog at one point in the beginning of the film remember mm -hmm. that mm-hmm i i do do any of us know uh, Darren's um, his pref preference of spiritual beliefs? He's an atheist. He is an atheist. Yes. Okay. Yes. But, he so doesn't believe he's in any the of fuck this. Out of the Bible. But I think <laughs> he basically what he was doing. But the, but he also he's Jewish, so he works in the Kabbalah and Jewish mysticism into not just Pi, but in Noah. Like in Pi, yeah. you see uh, Max Cohen put the tefillin on, which is this sort of black band that you wrap around your arm and it's mm -hmm. got like a little box you put on your head. You see Noah's father at the beginning of the film doing the same thing, only it's with snakeskin. It's when he's uh, the snakeskin from the tree of life mm -hmm. with Adam and Eve. No, the tree of knowledge. I'm getting ahead of myself. <laughs> anyway, okay. um, so he was working a number of religions notably Jewish mysticism into Noah. So it it wasn't so much the Christian dogma. It was a series of dogmas meshed together into one, which, again, pissed people off because they want to follow one strict theology and not an amalgam of them, which is what Noah ended up being. So he basically changed the legend into his own thing in mm -hmm. this movie. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Which I remember watching it and going like, oh, oh fuck, people are going to be so mad when they see this. Yeah. And I remember like the next day, like reading all this stuff on the internet about, mm. he ruined Noah, he raped Noah, he raped all the animals on the <laughs> boat. In their ass. Damn you, Darren. I saw those armadillo dogs going ass to ass. <laughs> somebody, somebody made a joke about that um, on his Twitter, I believe. <laughs> trying to find it somebody actually sent him on his twitter a picture of two donkeys with that actor's head from requiem for a dream superimposed onto it saying ass to ass oh my goodness gracious so in the end of this yeah it's not even out yet when, when is mother supposed to be out september Soon. 15th so that's coming up week or two next week around yeah. the corner yeah. yeah can't wait for that yeah, I'm really looking forward to it. That looks yeah. cool. I will see that opening night absolutely 100%. Yeah, yeah I'm yeah. going to have to go to that. I got to get I got to watch it and I got to see Mother. Those are my two movies I have to get. Well, gotta Mother's get got a fabulous cast too. It's like Jennifer Lawrence mm -hmm. who's dating Aronofsky right now. Oh, okay. Ed Harris is in it. Yeah. Michelle Bardem, Pfeiffer. Yeah. Michelle Pfeiffer. Yep. Yeah. And this is a horror movie though, correct? It's a movie. It is. Yeah. It is. Which is so. I think I think Arnovsky can really fit into that pretty easy. Mm -hmm. I mean, he's he's got an eye for you know across all of his films. I think there's been some rather disturbing in imagery in all those films. This is the first film of his that's not going to be scored by Clint Mansell, though. I was, oh, really? I was a little disappointed by that, but it's the composer behind Arrival doing it, Johan Johansson. So that's a or, beautiful that, that's a beautiful score too. Is it Johan Johansberg? I believe so. And uh, whatever fits, you know, mm -hmm. he's not going to make a bad choice as far as the music goes. No. So mm -hmm. I think we'll be okay. Yeah. And I remember getting cold feet when I heard he was working with a different cinematographer on The Wrestler, but the end result was great. It worked really well. Yeah. Um, so I know I'm looking forward to that. But we're all looking forward to that. Yeah. Darren Aronofsky is the man. I mean, he really is. I don't think he... He really, I mean, everything we talked about tonight. I, looking at the list, he has not made a bad film. He no. really hasn't made a film where it's like, oh, at this point, his career sucked. No, everything think, he's made has been top notch. I, th uh, 
I think the ambitions of Noah tend to buckle under their own weight, and there's a couple too many threads in the third act. But overall, I agree. I think he's, I think he's a master in his own right. Aronofsky's like pizza. Every once in a while, it might not be that great, but it's still pizza. Yeah, and that means uh-huh. it's awesome. So uh, <laughs> I don't think he would like that comparison. No, he no, no. he probably beat me up. Yeah, he probably he wouldn't give me a hander. Like, he wouldn't, fuck I wouldn't you, get a Scott black, Lambert. I wouldn't get a black swan hander from Darren for that comment <laughs> at all. Um, he'd probably think, break my hands. I think he would scrunch his eyes and nose for a second, and then just turn sharply and walk away. <laughs> we got to come up a name for that: the black swandy. The black swan. <laughs> There's got to be some name for the black swan hand job. Fantastic director, though. Uh, yeah. Writer, uh, producer too. Uh, and yeah, I, I mean, can't really think. I mean, like I said, everything he's done has been fantastic. And mm-hmm. um, I'm, I know we're all looking forward to seeing Mother and what's going to come down the road for Darren Aronofsky. I Do think you think Danzig is doing the theme song for Mother? <laughs> God, Chris, you're an idiot. I know. All right. I All right, think before we can... I fall out of this chair, because literally I'm like I'm like leaning here. I'm sorry, guys. I've kind of had a rough night tonight, but uh, it's all good. You guys, you guys carried it well though. Yeah. Uh, Andrew's the man. Andrew, Andrew holds. Andrew can handle his shit, dude. I can sit here and oh, it was a really great film. But Andrew's like, dude, check this shit out. <laughs> check it out, bro. Check, you can want... check out my article about Darren Aronofsky's filmography on SpoilerFreeMovieSleuth.com. Hell yeah. Yeah, and, we should repost that. I'll link it. And we're I'll making a special it. appearance in Ann Arbor tomorrow night. Nobody will know who we are, but we're still making a special appearance in Ann Arbor tomorrow night. <laughs> uh, make our presence spirit. known. Make our presence known. Uh, you won't know it, but we will, and we'll think we're really cool for that. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so, everybody. Yeah, why don't we call it a night here? Yeah, let's call it a night. This is episode 61. Make sure to check out projectorscreen.com. We'll be back next week with an episode on John Carpenter. Visit us at www.themoviesleuth.com and find The Movie Sleuth on Facebook, YouTube, Twitter, and iTunes.